Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Kitchen Garden Magazine podcast, your fortnightly fix of gardening features, advice and chat. Subscribe and follow us now to never miss an episode. We're very pleased to say that this week on the Kitchen Garden Magazine podcast, we've been chatting to Chelsea Gold medal winning designer and TV gardening expert Chris Beardshaw. Chris is the garden designer, author and lecturer who you'll have seen appear on Radio 4's Gardener's Question Time, Gardener's World and BBC 2's The Flying Gardener. Chris is appearing on behalf of Readly, the digital subscription service that offers unlimited all-you-can-read access to thousands of magazines, including Kitchen Garden magazine, in one app. Readly are offering two months of unlimited reading from the 17th to the 31st of May 2021. $7.99 a month thereafter at www.readly.com forward slash gardening. And now, here's Chris Beardshaw himself chatting to KG contributor and editor of the villagegrapevine.co.uk, Daniel Hayes. Hello Chris, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, not too bad. A bit windswept and wild today. I've just come back from sight, so um, I don't know what it's like wherever you guys are, but it's lashing with rain and uh and yeah everything is just horizontal right now uh, yeah it's pretty i mean i'm i'm down in hampshire and it's yeah it's windy 50 60 yeah. mile an hour yeah not yeah. too bad on the rain but um yeah I, that's what i do for a living i'm a landscape gardener and um i had to shift about five ton of gray welsh slate which was fun nice but there you go gets the job finished which is what it's all about really isn't it well it's better to shift slate in a in a when it's cool rather yeah. than if it was last this time last year, it'd be sort of twenty-seven degrees. So, I'd have lost a lot of weight very quickly. Yes, this is it. <laughs> yeah, people don't always realise that working in hot weather is not as enjoyable as it looks like. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes yeah. it's not. Yeah. But thank you very much for joining us. That's all right. Pleasure. So, I mean, we can start off with um, what what got you started in horticulture, Chris? Is it? Is it? Am I right? Thinking it was your grandmother? Maybe it was your first kind of person who led you in down the horticultural journey. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was my my grandmother who was um, on my father's side, who was um, largely self-taught gardener, really. You know, mm. post-war generation, uh, came from um, a, a very kind of ill-educated background, as a, as a lot of kind of um, working class people did at that time. And um, so she left school at 13, and one of her jobs was to arrange the flowers in the local house. She went into service, and she... she um, 
arranged the flowers and uh, amongst other things. And so she, she developed a sort of passion for just growing things that she could stick in a vase. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's really where, where, where my interest was, was sparked. I mean, she's the person who re- very astutely bought me a um, windowsill propagator and a packet of seed for my fourth birthday. And, uh, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing, you know, even though she wasn't horticulturally trained, she, she understood what it was to get somebody interested in horticulture and the steps that you needed. And um, so she bought me this, this packet of seed and a, and a propagator and a little watering can. And, and I sort of gaily scattered, scattered the seed on a bit of damp tissue paper like everyone else and mm. on the windowsill and, uh, and watched them grow. And I was just fascinated. You know, I just thought it was, it was the most amazing thing. These sort of strange little inert objects springing into life and then spinning the tray around as they grew and, and, and watching them chase the light and all that sort of thing. And then, and then harvesting them at the end as well, which was mm. even the, the kind of the best thing, you know. And what, I, what, what was, I think, her, her sort of stroke of genius, really, and I think I, I would put this to anybody who's trying to encourage someone else into gardening, is, is her stroke of genius was that she bought a packet of seeds and every one of those seeds germinated. And so as a four-year-old, you know, you, you can imagine that delight and the confidence building hmm. uh, as a consequence of every, every seed on that damp tissue paper germinated. And, uh, and I just thought, you know what, I'm really good at this. And so I, I just thought, well, that, that's, that must, it must be a message here. I'm just, that's, this is what I've got to do in life. And it was only much later, of course, that I realized that the seed was actually cress and um, <laughs> daylight today, you buy some cress in the local garden center. By the time you get it home, it's germinated in your pocket. But that, yeah. that thing is it makes something that's, you know, in these early stages, make something that's achievable and uh, have a target that, that you know, is, is very um, attainable. And, and then it, you get hooked, don't you? And so I went from yes. press to, um, to trees. You know, I, I missed out everything in between because, I you know, as a young boy, I didn't think there was anything of interest in between. So I went from sowing cress seed to collecting tree seeds and, um, mm-hmm. and, and sowing them in my parents' garden. And, and, and that, was, that was it, really. Well, just, um, did they enjoy you um, seeding trees? trees in their garden because i say some trees as you say like like a lot of them seeds they can start off very small and what they can become well an oak tree would be a classic is a tiny little acorn and um give it 20 years it can still become quite a quite an impressive tree even in that short amount of time yeah well you're exactly right i mean my, my parents thought it was amusing to start with because they gave me the patch of land that they <laughs> couldn't do anything on behind the garage and oh, so right. they go oh, all right this this will contain everything and um but very quickly my tree collection which was all natives, you know, it was, it was things that I was just collecting from the hedgerows and when we went on walks, I was stuffing my pockets full of seeds and bringing, as you say, bringing back things like um, field maples and uh, ash and, uh, you know, um, lime, um, certainly um, acorns as well to, to, for, for the Quercus. And uh, very quickly the space was, uh, became a little bit too large and we moved house and my, my mother insisted that all the trees that I was growing came with us. So we had one, one van that was just for the trees. And in fact, they've, they, they, there are some of those original trees that I sowed when I was four are still present in their, their, their new garden. Um, so, you know, however many years on, several decades on, um, they've still got some of those very early sowings from, uh, from my sort of embryonic ventures into horticulture, which is, which is quite interesting. It must be lovely because obviously you've got children yourself, haven't you? So it must be nice that they can kind of see that when you were smaller than they were, from, I don't know how old your children are, but that, that they can kind of see, oh, that's what I was doing. I and mean, it's, it's just a nice, I, I, don't, I suppose it's a, it's a lovely thing that kind of maybe what gardening and growing things is about is, as you say, you're a, 
I often say to our customers, you're really only a custodian of a garden. You, you own it for however long you live there. But uh, all the greats have always said, you're a custodian. You're looking after it. As you say, that tree you plant now in 50, 80, 100, 200 years time, it could still well be there. And as you say, it's, you've, you've added something to the future. That's what you do as a gardener in many ways. You do it to interest yourself at that point, but you're giving for the future. Yeah, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, trying to get that across to people, the importance of not just enjoying um, the, the landscape that you create now, but, but mm. thinking ahead and, and, and thinking what consequence is this going to have? And, you know, who in the case of trees, because they're obviously, you know, slower growing and, 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 and the, the timescale is, is, you know, far outreaches ours in most, most mm. cases. You know, just to just to sort of sow that seed of, of um, curiosity in, in a child. You know, who do you think is going to sit under this tree? Who's going to benefit from the shade of this tree or maybe make a den in it as we did when we were kids or maybe collect the seeds from it and, and think of all the, the sort of biodiversity that's in the tree and the, the net effect that this will have. How long will it be here on this, this kind of spot? And then add to that the sort of stories about how not just how trees have been used historically in the folklore attached to them, but also I think that some of the modern science, which really switches kids on, which is that, you know, as soon as you start to, start to say to, to children, and I did it with mine, you know, we've got a, there's um, a country park, not very far away from where we are, in fact, just behind where I am in the office here. And um, it's a traditional kind of landscape park with an avenue of trees stretching off towards um, Grand Gates and then a, a big old pile at the end of it. And, um, and we were walking down there and I said to them, how, how long do you think these will remain straight in a straight line? And I was explaining to them that, you know, trees, like everything, will move. And even though you plant a tree and you think, oh, that tree's going to be there and, and now it's rooted to that spot, you know, if you explain to them about the principles of contractile roots and the idea that, as you will may, may know, you know, they, they stretch their roots out in this kind of radial platform, seeking out nutrients and moisture. And if they find tasty morsels somewhere and they feel it's better than where they are, the roots will contract and the bowl of the tree drags itself towards that, uh, that favorable um, environment that the roots have found. And, and, you know, over centuries, you can look at some of the old avenues and see the sort of kinks in the avenue where the tree has moved in one direction or another to get either out of boggy ground or into a bit more moisture and a bit more fertility or whatever it is. So the fact that you know, none of these things are static and, and it may not be in our lifetime, but these trees are not, uh, they're, they're not just permanent fixtures in the landscapes. They are, they are these wonderful organisms which um, interact with so many different um, other organisms and create a cycle around themselves. I, I just think it's fantastic, you know, and, and love it when people, you know, you sow that seed of enthusiasm and I'm sure you have with customers too. You sow that seed of enthusiasm and, and you're kind of, you can start to see light bulbs going on and, and they try something and then they come back to you and they're like evangelical about horticulture because they've discovered something for themselves. And I think that's, that's what's great about it. You know, gardeners are very generous and, and I think, you know, sharing plant material, but also sharing knowledge and sharing enthusiasm. And, and that's, I think, what makes um, one gardener talking to another or, 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 you know, talking to people about horticulture and gardening so exciting is that um, everyone's got something to learn and, and everyone sees things slightly differently. Well, you're always learning. You're never... And also, I think the wonderful thing about gardening is there are books that will tell you that plants should grow better here, as you say, it grows better in this. But there is actually the often thing is you'll often see a plant that you look and think, but that really shouldn't be surviving very well there. But they do. And it's yeah. the, the beautiful thing of try. There, yeah. is, there is no hard and fast rules necessary. You will be surprised that they are 
nature adapts. Yeah. Like humans, yeah. you adapt, as they say. So would, yeah. would, you, would you like to see more horticulture taught in schools? Not necessarily just to very young children, even to, because I know going back, I mean, probably maybe before our time, that horticulture and things like that would have been taught, kind of growing and things like that. Whereas it seems to have been, it's obviously a boom at the moment because obviously with the uh, obviously the current situation with lockdown and everything, gardens have suddenly become, people have realised how important a garden actually really is. But would it be, do you think there's a way that we can get it more back in to get, because like all, like all professions, you need, you need the youngsters coming through. Yeah, no you're one right. Forever. Yeah. Absolutely. So how, how, you, how you get them into it. Now, is it worth doing something through, through national curriculum that kind of they do get taught these little tricks like you like you did with your um, with your grandmother? As you say, it's, it ignites the fire, as they say. Yeah. Well, I think one of, one of the interesting things is that when I uh, was was starting to get involved, I mean, I, I as I say, I started when I was four. I knew what I wanted to do really all the way through primary school, um, I knew I wanted to grow plants, not necessarily what that meant professionally, but I knew mm. I wanted to grow plants and be around people who were growing plants. And um, so I, when I went to secondary school, um, I knew that I, I wanted to study, um, you know, biology, geology, um, and uh, geography. Um, so I wanted to do those more kind of earthy sciences. And um, in fact, one of the, when I was doing my options at school, one of the things that my school offered was um, something called rural studies and rural mm -hmm. studies took place in a big old victorian lab with great big benches and raised stools and gas taps and around the room were shelves and shelves of bell jars with specimens in yeah. everything from kind of sharks jaws down to you know bits of mycorrhiza or, or, or whatever you know preserved and, and exhibited and I wanted to do this because I, I, you know, they're, they're, one of their activities was to go out and they had, to all intents and purposes, a kitchen garden, an allotment that was a part of the classroom. And I wanted to do this as a as study uh, and wanted to have it as, and, and do it as O-level. And um, my, my careers teacher uh, just said, absolutely not. No. I mean, this is, and, I mean, without, um, without being, uh, well, I think without, without distorting any of the truth here, his his words to me were rural study is for the remedial stream. And, oh, nice. and it was considered something, you know, gardening and growing plants and having an understanding of that side of science, the sort of practical application of science, was considered something that you did if you couldn't do anything else. And I think that, you know, to many, uh, in many ways, that still persists to some extent. I mean, it was uh, David Cameron, um, even when he was prime minister, made some rather banal comment about, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the guys who uh, perhaps weren't good enough for apprenticeships should go out and do gardening. And it's mm. almost as though um, that, that, that it's, a, it's a poor man's science or a poor man's activity. So absolutely, I, I agree. To be able to educate people, to understand that the, the complexities and the nuances, the various uh, ways in which um, horticulture affects our lives, um, you know, the current peak debate, for instance, um, mm. biodiversity, um, the, the, the de declining populations of, of bees, declining populations of worms, supporting an ever-growing worldwide population, that's all horticulture, you know, that is all gardening, but on a grand scale. And, and so to, you know, you could, there's nothing, I, I think there's nothing you can't teach, which can't be demonstrated in some way, either in a garden or using material from a garden. 
And whether you're teaching, you know, hydraulics and looking at cellular pressure and the way that nutrients are absorbed through the roots and then pumped up to the leaves, or whether you're looking at tropisms and the fact that, you know, how does a plant know if it's up or down and how the way gravity works in a cell with a grain of starch and, and the grain of starch touches the inside of the cell and then the plant knows because of receptors that that's down. You know, all of these sorts of things, that, that's, that's kind of sophisticated science, which has a fundamental effect on how plants grow, which consequently has a fundamental effect on, on us and, and our success as a, as a society and, and, and as a, you know, the human race. So, yeah, I think that it's, it's a real shame that, horticulture isn't viewed as a science um, which it very clearly is and mm. i think partially because we you know in my days lecturing as a as a as a, as a horticultural lecturer and, and and landscape architect um it's partially because we are a very disparate profession you know a lot of us work in either individually or in small groups um it's a very focused um profession we very rarely get the opportunity to to pull resources and come together uh, we don't necessarily have a very strong collective voice across a very broad spectrum of of, of um, works and operations everything from kind of you know technical hard landscaping and, and construction of swimming ponds down to you know breeding new black currants or whatever it is you know it, what is it that pulls all of us together it's, it's horticulture but where's the voice Where's that kind of platform to which, from which we can reach out to people and say, do you know what, whatever it is you're looking at, it in some way ties back to horticulture, growing plants, soils, um, you know, the environment uh, and so on. And I think it's a great shame that, that as, a, as a, an industry, we don't stand up and say, we, we can solve all of the problems the world mm -hmm. faces right now. We can solve all those problems as horticulturalists and agro scientists and environmentalists and all those sorts of things. Pull everyone together because that's where the solutions lie. Yeah, and I, and I think it's it's also everything is connected. Even like I mean, there's often schemes where they're trying to get corridors throughout. I mean, just in Britain, corridors and as you say, that little wildflower patch in your back garden. It might only be a meter square, but it's getting the realization that actually that. All the little things together, all combined, can all make something happen. It's a bit like the single voice. Yeah, well, the single voice gets another voice and the pyramid effect. And as you say, it's, yeah, it's, I think it's just realising that even you do, anyone just doing a small thing can have a huge impact. And quite simply, we're all connected by it because even if you look at food, food is generally grown. Well, we all need it. If there is, I mean, there's the, the famous saying about bees. If bees, for whatever reason, died off, or we, we would we'd be pretty quick behind them, they say, because of what they pollinate and insects in, and just all, all insects, all, all insects are important, even if you don't like slugs. I'm sure you don't if they've eaten your lettuce or anything, but they're all part of the, they're all part of the food chain and they, they, people have to realise that everything is connected and you, you need to keep that harmony. But, and as you say, but yeah, I do get what you mean about it's almost kind of a bit like a poor man's job or garden or anybody, anyone can do that. Well, yeah. there's more to it than that. But well, there's I, more to life than that. I, I do know what you mean. Yeah, I've had it before. Are you a gardener? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. yes, as you say, yeah. Who do you think grows your food then? They're yeah. all gardeners of a different type, shall we say. I, I have a very similar experience where um, I, I sat down to, uh, I was invited to one of these kind of posh functions where you sit down, you know, black tie and all that sort of thing. So, mm. yeah. And um, it was very interesting. Uh, people, a table of people I didn't know, sort of eight or 12 people I didn't know. Um, and um, so everyone, you know, goes around politely introducing themselves and that sort of thing. And the, the guy that was sitting next to me was a sort of uh, a very um, well-heeled elderly gent 
who looked at me and uh, and he he just sort of said, um, and you are, and I told him who I was, and he said, and you do, and I, <laughs> I, I and it's that point where I I have a slight kind of mischievous streak where I will either try and explain what it is I do, yeah. um, or I'll just say I'm a gardener because I think if you say you're a gardener, it's a real test of that individual's um, personality. And I said to him, I'm a gardener, and he just sort of looked at me and said, oh. And then he spent the entire rest of the evening talking to the person to the other side and wouldn't even, he didn't even think it was appropriate yeah. or, or relevant to engage in a conversation. And yet the person I was sitting on the other side of said, a gardener, wow, do you know, I don't know anything about gardening. I'd love to get involved. And suddenly a conversation unfolded. And I think sometimes, it, you're right, there is this sense that being a gardener, um, it's, it's seen as more of an extended hobby rather than a profession. Mm. And, and you know, I think it's the difference between, or, or, or maybe I should say it's, it's, it's similar to um, somebody who is a professional chef um, being called a cook. You know, mm, we, all yes. cook we all cook things, um, but that doesn't make us a chef. We all have gardens yeah. and garden, but that doesn't make us a professional gardener. Um, and I think that's it, that degree of explanation and, um, and sort of protraction of, of uh, professional skills and knowledge hasn't necessarily been... Um, fully, uh, fully demonstrated. But you know, we, just to go back to that point about everything being connected, we did a program some years ago um, about soil, and um, we were talking with various people about soils and and you know in the profession. And what startled everybody is that civilization clings to about thirty centimeters of living matter in some parts of the earth. And that's what we all cling to. That's what we're all dependent on. So this, when you see um, landscape contractors and developers driving over soil and trashing it and compacting it and flooding it and not looking after it, or farmers thrashing it to within an inch of their life with mm. artificial fertilizers and tilling it at the wrong time, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a complete disrespect for what is the most complex um, ecosystem. And it's that ecosystem, that 30 centimeters really of topsoil in most places, um, which is keeping us all going. If that is allowed to disappear, then um, clearly nothing happens. And that's, that's, you know, we don't have to look very far back to see the effects of that. Even, even in the UK, you know, we're used to seeing pictures of the Dust Bowl in, uh, in, the, in the US, um, mm. you know, in the, in the 1920s. But if you looked in, into places like Thetford Forest, for instance, Thetford Forest is there because the land was mismanaged, there was no organic matter being planted on, and the soil blew away. And mm. so now the only thing that will grow is rather kind of brashy conifers. So it's, it, it's frightening how vulnerable that soil is. And we don't make the link between the vulnerability of the soil and our own vulnerability. There's a sort of arrogance about us really, um, which I think we just need to be a little bit more humble about who we are and how we integrate with other, other organisms. Yeah, well, yeah, as you, I totally agree. Cause as you say, there's more life in that little square patch of soil I think they've said that you kind of there's more life in a meter square of soil organisms that you can't necessarily see or touch or feel or that than there is humans on the planet. Yeah, and that sometimes brings it into thinking. Well, we're, we're obviously a massively expanding race, and as you say, some say, "Are oh, we the best thing or the worst thing on the planet?" Well, we can do wonderful things, but we can also do we're the very best and the very worst. I would say of of the uh, living organisms on the planet. We can do we and we can do wonderful things, but. This is, as you say, it's that happy balance, and sometimes we get it wrong. But and I do agree with you about yes, you see a lot of modern developments. They they try and kind of keep their green credentials up, but then you kind of look and think, but you've you've given with one hand, and 
often you've taken far more by, as you say, the way they do it, or they just throw stuff in. And I'm working on one houses on a new development at the moment, and um, they are trying to make it more. And I did make a comment of the pretty awful piece of land they've left with rocks and boulders. Oh, no, it's wildflowers. They'll be all right. And I just kind of looked and just thought, yeah, you can't just chuck some wildflower down and go, oh, yeah, but we put some wildflower down. Oh, that's okay then. But as you say, the land's been driven on and it's almost made an, I mean, the flooding problem is built on a bit boggy land anyway. The flooding problem can only get worse because you've put houses on it and you've built, they've built balancing ponds. Unfortunately, the balancing ponds, when it rained every day, I didn't notice them filling up with water, but I did notice plenty of other places where, well, they're not balancing ponds. And I think it's just that little bit of thinking about it. But then it's it's always the last thing on, well, unfortunately, it comes to money, these things. And I think it's the last thing on their mind or the bit they can always pinch from. Oh, we need some flashy kitchens to sell these houses. We'll nick it from the um, landscaping budget. It's always been the way. And it's sad and it shouldn't happen. And it's allowed to happen. But... Yeah, one of those things. It would take a long time to get over it. Now, Chris, I so say we're doing this kitchen garden magazine. Do you have a little allotment at home or a patch for growing your veg? So I do. Yes, I. Oh, um, I uh, so we've got a, a barn in the Cotswolds, which has got a, a, a piece of old agricultural land ar- around it, um, which we've turned into an ornamental garden. And we st- originally we we had various terraces as herb gardens and kitchen gardens and that sort of thing, but. It was um, it, it was too difficult to manage in what is quite a concentrated area. So we um, approached in in the village we're in. There are some um, village allotments, and um, we took one of those on. And so we've got what was actually an abandoned allotment. Um, you know, like a lot, a lot of people, you pick mm-hmm. it up, and um, it's seen it, it's definitely seen some uh, some perennial weed. Um, so <laughs> the first job inevitably was just to, to clear it. And, um, so I, I went in and, uh, strimmed it all down, uh, took all the brashings away and then, um, flamethrowed it and just went over um, very briefly with a flamethrower, just to sort of kill the annual weeds and then dug it over, um, taking out as much of the perennial as possible, sheeted it over with uh, geotextile and then just let it rest and, and mm. let it all kind of find its level. And then we put on loads of organic matter, loads of local farmyard manure. It's the one thing that we're not short of around here in the Cotswolds. Oh, that's really uh, Some good old farmyard manure that's well rotting. Put some of that on and then um, and then started to uh, improve the ground gradually. So, um, yeah, we're, and, and it's not great this season, really. It's not, it's not an ideal season to be um, dabbling in, in fruits and veg just because, well, as you will know, cold and dry to start with. Mm. So um, it was nothing was really growing because it was everything in the Cotswolds here. I mean, we had three, four weeks where the temperature at night didn't raise above freezing. Um, mm. Daytime temperatures were still sort of hovering around five, six, although it was clear and dry. And then almost at the flick of a switch, uh, we went from that to um, to slightly milder, only ever so slightly milder, but mm. uh, And that's that yeah. everything then, then grows through. So yeah, we, we were, in fact, we were out on the allotment yesterday and um, just putting a few plants in and putting cloches on. I hope they're still there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, just just sort of tending that. So yeah, we've got our we've got our onions and our garlics and we've got our um, peas and beans and um, a few things still to go out. Um, we've uh, great great fans of courgettes and uh, butternut squash and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Growing a few herbs. We've um, uh, green manure as well um, uh, around the place where we where we can't cultivate right now or if we're yet to plant mm. green manures in. 
um, and a collection of uh, fruit trees that grow at the sort of higher altitudes. We're fairly high here in the Cotswolds, so um, mm. we're in, so go for the more cold tolerant ones. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, it's what's lovely is, uh, what I like about it is that it's a complete separation from the ornamental garden at home. So when you step outside at home, you feel really pressured to keep it neat and tidy and there's always mm-hmm. a job to do. Whereas I think gardening, uh, and it's only just a couple of hundred metres away from home, but gardening on the allotment gives you a completely different um, emotional response, I suppose, uh, an emotional effect. You know, you, it's a much more free, much more peaceful. You sort of take your time. You can come back and do jobs because you don't have to keep it looking uh, no, tidy all the time. It's yours as well. That's why I love my allotment. I mean, I've just moved house. and My allotment's actually at home now. But I, I've always loved an allotment and people are so with but you do that for a living. You do, you can call yourself a horticulturalist. There you go. That's the posh gardener and a horticulturalist. But I said, yes, but it's mine. And it's, it's just, it's totally different from doing it for someone else or designing it because it's my little thing and I can relax there. And you can, I mean, you've, I imagine you've done the same. You can spend a couple of hours on an allotment. And sometimes, sometimes you spend most of the time chatting to other people on other allotments. But just the time goes and it's just a, a wonderful, relaxing way of being. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and there's there's something about the friendliness, the warmth, I think, on, a, on an allotment yes. that you don't necessarily get in a gardening community with people, um, even when houses are adjacent. You know, sometimes mm. you get a cohesive community like that. But more often than not, if you go onto the allotment, there's always somebody there who, especially if you're new to the allotments, there's always somebody there who's willing to give you a bit of advice about yes. what to grow, what the conditions are like. Um, you know what they've had successes with the history of the of that or share some of the, the surplus plant material um, you know it's it, it is it, it's a proper kind of old-fashioned community and, and mm. I first came across allotments when I was what five six something like that my grandfather had three allotments in fact um, my dad had two allotments and um, it, you know we used to wander down I mean they were in different places but we'd wander down to whoever's allotment we were going to and um, everyone had the obligatory shed and uh, the guys spent most of their, their weekend, I think, sitting in the shed, brewing various uh, dodgy um, wines <laughs> and beers, to be honest. Anything yeah, that was, uh, yeah. yeah, anything that was a surplus on the allotment seemed to end up in the, in the, in the kind of brewing uh, area of the shed. Um, but yeah, I mean, just a great escape, really. And, and I think um, ju- just to be able to grow a few things, I mean, it, you know, we're not trying to be self-sustaining. But to, to grow a few fruit, fruits and veg, and as, as you will know, the, the first strawberries you pick or the, the peach mm. that you pick or whatever it is, it's the best one you're going to have. And yeah. So I, I just think it's, yeah, it's great. It keeps everybody grounded. And I think reminds, yes. you know, what, what, the, what the weather is doing as well. You know, we're, yeah. you, if you ever you want to know what the weather's doing, ask a gardener because yeah. they will always be able to tell you not what the weather's doing now, what it was like last week, last month, last season, what they're looking forward to, what's been suppressed, what's been forced, etc. You know, it's a much more analytical approach to understanding the way that mm. um, weather and the climate is is moving and shifting and, and, and drifting through. Yeah, because I always think it is makes you feel we really, you, I always realize when you look at nature and down your allotment, how actually quite insignificant we like to think as a race, we're wonderful and what we control all these things. But where you actually realise suddenly how quite insignificant we are if nature flexes her muscles, shall we say, that we are. And as you said, that's what I love about it. It just goes to show that, um, uh, as you say, just that that part of it. So I've just got to turn some power on, I think. There you go. 
should all be on. Then my phone was running out of power for a second. Um, yeah, that's the wonderful thing of it. Um, now, Chris, move on to the next thing. Of course, you're a gold medal winner, winning a uh, man at Chelsea. How do you think this change? Are you are you uh, doing anything at the the new Chelsea? Can we call it? Everything seems to have the new as a it's fitted in front of it because it's obviously now in September, I think, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Rather end of May. Mm, end of September. So we we did uh, the last garden we did was 2019. So um, 2020 obviously was cancelled altogether, and they just yeah. did the virtual Chelsea. Um, and in 2019, or actually in the run-up to 2019, we'd, we'd already made the decision that we, you know, didn't want to do anymore. Really, it was we'd done five in a row, and I think we've done 23 or 24 shows altogether. Um, yeah. So we we pretty much uh, stepped back, and the, and the sponsor that we we had at the time, Morgan Stanley, had also decided that actually they only wanted to do five. So it was quite a nice conclusion to hmm. to to being at Chelsea. Um, and you know, you always miss being there. Um, both as an exhibitor or, you know, even if you don't visit. Um, this September, I think, the one in September will be quite interesting. There's a, the, mm. it's, quite, it's, it's, it's fascinating listening to people's responses to, to the move to September. There's a lot of people who perhaps don't think that it's going to be uh, quite the same and, and not quite have the, quite the, the same prestige. But mm. I think from a planting point of view, um, it's, it's, of course, the first time that we will have seen those late summer, early autumn species exhibited and used in gardens, yes. and perhaps more interesting, what the nursery folk bring, and you know what is it that they're able to to bring on stream, which is looking great in in at that time of the year. I think it's not an easy thing to do because we have the advantage when we do it in spring that um, everything gets better. So if you bring a tree onto site and it's emerging foliage, you yes. know if you keep the keep it well tended it's going to flourish and get better. The hedges unfurl. Herbaceous plants will put on two, three, four inches and come into flower. And I think that the challenge for um, anyone exhibiting at Chelsea this year, garden or nursery, is that um, if you challenge a plant at that point in its life, it's going to retract rather than advance. And so it's going to become stressed. The petals will fall, the flowers will fade, the foliage will turn, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, you don't have advantage, the advantage of um, the root bald plants that we we just catch the end of the root ball season for, for mm. the big trees and hedges and of course you won't be able to do that um, in September everything will have to be container grown or have been containerized um, so I, I, I do think that from a practical perspective it's a challenge but from a, a horticultural viewers perspective I think it's fascinating because you know hopefully you'll see all of those things like the the helleniums and um, the echinaceas all starting to, to, you know, all those kind of late summer prairie plants yeah. that we're used to seeing at, at some of the other shows. You'll see those starting to come through, but also fruiting plants as well. You know, so there, there will be plants which which have fruit on them rather than blossom. So I think that that, that will be interesting as well. Maybe, maybe you'll get a completely different audience at Chelsea, actually. They will be much more... I think the, the kind of old-school approach to gardening, because I, I don't know about you, but when I, I learned my horticulture... Autumn was the time to plant. Autumn was the time when everyone went manic in the garden. It was digging, it was bare root. You know, the whole preparation of planting was done autumn, well, really kind of end of September through to, to yeah. early March. Well, feeding the soil. As you say, you'd, you'd be getting your mulches down to feed the soil so that you have a nice spring. Yep. I, yep. Exactly. I just, yeah. Oh, because well, I was chatting to um, Medwin Williams, who does obviously another, another Chelsea gold runner. And because I said to him, because often when he shows his vegetables, he's showing them out of season. 
in May because quite a lot of them, that's not when they're going. And he says, so it's, it's, it'll be different, but it's nice because actually you're growing them in their, their normal growing spell. Yeah. At the end of September, there's things like squashes and things like that and not a lot of bigger root carrots and things like that, leeks. That is their natural time to be picked and eaten and shown. So he says, but it just brings a different aspect to it. But no, I agree with you. I think it's, it's going to be different because it will be because obviously it's a different time of the year. But as you say, that's an interesting bit. As you say, the, you, it's going to take a bit more management because things are on the way. They're not on the up. They're suddenly they're all starting to look to kind of anything deciduous. He's going to start thinking if we have a cold snap there, we might have a hot September, but we might have a cold one. So yep. it's yep. it's keeping that that happy balance. I think so, also it'll be the first time that you've seen autumn colour at Chelsea as well. You yeah. know, the, because if the nurseries, we know that we can shunt plants by about a month depending on how we treat them. So if the mm. nurseries have deliberately dried off aces, for instance, and they and dried the pots off. Um, and then give them just enough water to keep them going. It will force them, especially as you say, if it's um, if we've got blue skies and a bit of uh, cool evenings, mm. um, they will be able to force the autumn colour. So you, you potentially see fruiting and autumn colour and the kind of last gasp flowers, um, which brings a very, very dis- different atmosphere to, to that environment. Yeah. Have you spotted any trends so far this year in the um, in the veg growing world and in, in, in horticulture worlds that you think that might be shown at? Places like Chelsea or Hampton Court, for instance, are still on the same time. Yeah, I'm not sure about being shown. I think that, that um, the certainly the trends that we've seen in terms of the clients that we deal with and the mm. types of plants that they're growing, the types of questions that come in um, from clients and also, for, you know, on, on Gardener's Question Time, that sort of thing, they're much more about the more traditional crops. I think there's a real resurgence of interest in things like the French beans, the Bolotti beans, um, uh, you know, broad beans, people are interested in some of the, the, the more unusual um, varieties, the older varieties, um, different coloured fruits as well. So um, going for yellow and white raspberries rather than the, the conventional mm. red forms. So I think that that's that's quite reassuring because there were a couple of years ago, there was this sort of trend for um, sort of exotic uh, fruit and veg that was because it was um, different, you know, the kind of um, electric daisy, for instance. I mean, you know, they, everyone wanted to grow that because they thought that yeah. you know, it was going to be a great, a great um, edible. And actually, the reason that nobody had ever heard of it is because it's it's a horrible little thing that nobody wants to eat. <laughs> so, um, you know, what's the point in growing it? I think there's, what's happened is we maybe have dabbled in those sorts of things and discovered mm. that actually there's a world of heritage fruits and veg which um, really merits some attention. And those are the sorts of things that we're being asked questions about, you know, heritage tomatoes. Um, yeah. So everyone wants to grow the gardener's delight because it's fail safe. You can stick it on the side and, you know, let it get on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what yeah. about what about some of the more unusual things? What about brandy wine or something like mm. that, you know, that, that um, is a little bit more tricky, but actually really, um, really fun to grow. And, well, and the really Yeah. Well, I would only say to you one word on that on growing things that a thing was cucumelons. I took yeah. me ages to grow any, and then I finally grew and got them. And they look wonderful. Don't get me wrong. They look wonderful. Pretty bland and horrible, if I'm being honest. I thought they were going to be something amazing. And I, I ate one, and I thought, I've been doing that all these years, and I finally get them, and they're really not – They're well, I wouldn't say they're horrible, but they're not kind of – they look better than they are taste-wise, shall we say. 
which yeah, looks, looks yeah, exactly yeah. It looks, good. It looks good on a seed packet or in a, yeah. in a photograph in a magazine but doesn't look good when you 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 present it on a plate and i think it's a those sorts of things are a great example that um you know just because we can doesn't mean we need to um, yes. in the, in the yes. case of something like cucumelon you know yeah i'm picking on it i shouldn't say that As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com/results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com/results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We've had a bit interesting in the spring we've had. How do you think it's going to affect going forward the growing seasons for plants not just for the shows but how do you think it's going to affect it overall do you think in a because we've had a, as you say we have had a funny I, I get the global warming is a thing but I I sometimes think the planet will warm up and cool down and I don't think it necessarily really worries about what we do because if it wanted to get rid of us I think it would be a flick of flick of the hand and we're gone but I tend to find certainly in I think is the more extremes we're getting now. I don't necessarily the seasons seem to blend into one a little bit more. Winters aren't quite as cold, except just summers are hotter. But as I say, is is this this is part of the thing that obviously in the growing in whether it be vegetables, plants, trees, I think it's something we've got to overcome is the extremes of and it maybe at the wrong times when you wouldn't expect to get a frost. But yeah, there again we did do I mean, I know. I mean, I live quite near. The, I'm on the Hampshire, Surrey, Berkshire borders. You only have to go back kind of fifty, sixty years, and you'd have had snowdrifts in Surrey and Kent, and they they would have been twenty foot high snowdrifts. So it's not as though we don't have, we haven't had these extremes. But is are we affecting it that much that we're doing it, or is it just the planet naturally expanding? I suppose we have to look at it on a planetary level. Not just looking at like dear old blighty and what we're doing is what's everyone else doing and is that what's the problem is as such? Yeah, that's right. I think the uh, the reassuring thing, uh, the spring that we've had, um, yeah, you know, we we certainly if, if here gardening here in the Cotswolds is anything to to go by, we the autumn was very mild and reasonably wet. Then we had a period of of really cold dry weather. Um, we had uh, two, two, actually, no, we had four snowfalls. We had two within 10 mm. days. 
Um, the second two not being very, um, very long and also not very deep. I mean, you know, it's a couple of inches and that was it. Um, and then, as we, as we said earlier, that kind of um, uh, dry period, which suppressed everything and now gone into that kind of um, wetter weather, but without the temperatures lifting. And I think what we're seeing here, um, and we're at around about 900 feet, just over 900 feet, is that um, we're about a month behind this time last year. Now, admittedly, mm. last year last year was an exceptional season in terms of when spring kicked in and the temperatures achieved and the fact we didn't have any rain, clear blue skies, etc. So perhaps it's unfair to judge this year against last year. But it shows you that, you know, we're, I reckon we're about four weeks adrift. Um, mm. And the good news is that the plants will catch up. Um, you know, they, they've seen many, many more um, variations in weather than, than we have. Um, you think about uh, the sort of broad spectrum of plants that, have, uh, that we grow. Um, you know, they've spent millions of years evolving to cope with mercurial springs. And, mm. um, and we've only seen a handful of them. So um, I think that they will catch up. Most of them are fairly resilient, especially those that are being grown in um, reasonable conditions where the, where the plant choice was also reasonable for those conditions. Um, what we'll see inevitably is a sort of concertina ring of, um, of, of flowering and fruiting. So the, the plants which would traditionally have been, uh, have come and gone by now, still haven't flowered in the garden at home. So, I mean, our, our things like Fritillaria persica, for instance, is still in flower. And we normally see that as a March, April plant. Here mm. we are, you know, reaching the end of May and it's still, still in its prime. The geranium phaeums have only just started to flower and normally they're done and dusted by the beginning of May. So um, what we'll see is all of those plants sort of drifting on into um, early summer, as well as if the weather does pick up and we do have, you know, what they're promising as a slightly warmer spell and, and, and less rain, wind and so on. Um, so your traditional summer plants will then come on stream as well. So you'll get this sort of strange amalgam of late spring and early summer plants all sort of colliding. And it reminds me of, um, I years ago was working with a, a woman up in Shetland and we were talking about gardening in Shetland. I was up in, in her garden in Shetland and she was saying, you know, we get spring, summer and autumn all together in two months. And th mm. that's what happens if you, if you challenge the plants, everything is pressed together and everything happens all in the same time. And I was standing in her garden in the middle of the summer and there were daffodils in flower. Um, mm. And it's just that, you know, everything, everything kind of is, is as I say, concertinaed. So I, I kind of take heart in the fact that the plants are much more resilient than we, most plants are much more resilient than we give them credit for. Um, sometimes it spoils our designs and sometimes it spoils our plans for rotation and, and harvest mm. and all that sort of thing. But in the greater scheme of things, it's one spring um, that's, that's a bit of a challenge. And, and, you know, some crops will do much better this year than they did last year with yeah. a, bit of, uh, a bit of extra moisture and those slightly cooler temperatures. So... You know, it's, I think we, we just have to learn to adapt to a changeable environment rather than mm. trying to constantly do the same thing year on year and expect the environment to stay the same. Uh, the environment has never stayed the same and it will never stay the same. Yeah. So I think we've got to, we, we've got to use our skill set to, uh, to, to learn what the parameters are and have reserves. And that, in a way, that's a great lesson from something like Chelsea. When we're doing gardens at Chelsea, we grow um, a, a range of uh, crops for uh, in case it's an early season and we grow a range of crops in case it's a late season. And we sometimes divide those crops into two locations of growing, one in the north, one in the south. 
um, so that we get the kind of different nuances of, of the speed at which spring comes through. And for each plant we choose, uh, that we think we want to exhibit, we will also then have at least one substitute in the early and late category. So for any one plant that arrives, there might have been three or four others that were grown as a precaution. And I think maybe that's the way in, in terms of um, uh, growing our fruits and veg, maybe that's the way we need to start thinking mm. is, is to, to not just religiously sow our, our, you know, our leeks or whatever it is at the end of February, because that's what the packet says, but teach people to understand what's going on with the season and what the consequences of that would be. And that, of course, is the old-fashioned way of gardening. That's the sort of thing that our grandparents mm. would have been very tuned into and old agriculturalists and horticulturalists, you know, that old story of, I'm sure you've heard it of, um, well, the version I heard was uh, about East Anglian farmers dropping their trousers and sitting on the tilled ground to see if it was time to put their onion sets in. And if they stood up mm. and they got piles, it was too early to put the onion sets in. Um, and it, you know, it, it's it, that type of thing. We're sort of reading the environment and the condition mm. you're in, rather than just doing it by rote, as it were. And I think that's where, you know, to go back to your your, your comment about um, about Readly, that's what I find quite interesting about the the Readly platform. I don't know if you've looked at it, but the uh, yeah. in the sort of gardening sphere, you know, there are what about twenty five magazines um, that are on offer in, in the English speaking section. About twenty five. Mm magazines that go back as far as 2014. So you're seeing and able to get access to articles from gardeners, including uh, people like Medwin, for instance, um, as far back as 2014, writing about the various springs. So not only is it encyclopedic because there's something written about just about every subject, but also it's very indicative, especially the weeklies, very indicative of the way that the, the spring was kicking in and how people were reacting to that. And I think the more of that we can um, ingrain in people that, you know, read the situation rather than do it as according to the RHS encyclopedia. Um, I mm. think that, that's a, a much, much better way of, um, of, of gardening, to be honest. It's, it's sort of, you're just in tune with what's out there rather than... Yeah being in a situation where you're, you're doing it because somebody's told you to do it, but you don't have any allied knowledge. Um, and I think that's, that's the beauty of that, that body of, of knowledge that's on, on that really digital platform. And, and, you know, I, I think the, on a day like today, I mean, we, we've got a rain forecast for tomorrow as well. Um, mm -hmm. And it just isn't worth going outside. I think, you know, you can spend the day just um, jenning up on your horticultural skills via other people's uh, um, uh, authored pieces and inspirational photographs and so on. Um, and you, then your time isn't wasted. Yeah, no, I took away, yeah. Even, even sound funny if you're saying about the RHS, and even they, in the recent years, changed their things. As you say, they realise they've got to be a little bit more adaptive, quite simply, because you can't just stick by these hard and fast rules that have been there for 100 years. And because I know they changed their, as you say, how plants are growing, what, what kind of their bands and what, oh, this is good to grow in this. They've made it slightly more complex, haven't they? Not, not massively complex, but kind of said there are subsections to the thing. You can't just say, well, there you go. There's 10, 10 kind of 10 areas and this is, it'll grow in a 10. It's oh, yeah, this is good for one, two or three. Now they've, they've realised that you have to be adaptive. But um, I think you're right. It's, it's the local knowledge, a bit like you say, down the local allotment, the old boys, they've got the local knowledge of, often with what does go for, even with pests and diseases. Yep. you'll have trouble with them some club roots in the in the ground there and and as you say but you wouldn't necessarily know club roots in the ground unless someone told you or obviously you you investigated it and I, and I think that's the uh you can't deny that that wonderful thing of learning from other people 
mm. in your area and you'll find out what grows well, why it grows well. Maybe there is no rhyme or reason. It just does. And yeah. as you say, these are the things you can only learn. And yeah. I must say that. Also, yeah, sorry. Also, just moving things oh. from one side of the garden to another, so that yeah. you'll know that you can have a very sheltered, warm, free-draining area of the garden, and two yeah. paces away, three paces away, the other side of the garden, completely different. And, and yeah. some soils are much more suitable for growing plants, which which are from different extremes. So, for instance, I've got um, one area of my garden where I've got um, uh, sweet peas growing next to hostas. Um, growing next to a wisteria um, and some cyclamen and a hemerotalis and um, and an edgeworthia. And you, and you sort of think, well, actually, none of those things really should go together. Um, no. But they do because well, of the nature of the soil. You know, it's it, 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 we're gardening here on a really quite heavy clay, but then underneath about 30 centimetres of clay is very free-draining Cotswold brash. So there's mm. enough to retain in the clay with the additional organic matter that we put on to keep things like the hostas going. But the clay is free draining enough because of the organic matter we put on for the sweet peas to uh, to, to thrive too. So I think it's it, it, it's understanding those um, enormous nuances really, and the, and the, di- the diversity and complexity of the site, reading your your, your site. And uh, you know, one of the, the first things I was taught as a student was do nothing in the garden. And in fact, my tutor said, do nothing for a year. When you move into yeah. do nothing, just watch. Watch what happens, watch where the sun comes up, watch where the wind goes through, you know, where various plants come up, read the plants which are coming up, and then you'll be informed and then you can make the best steps. So I think patience sometimes is, yeah. is actually something that we lack in gardening. I think that's good advice. I've heard, I've been told that many times before as well, is that sit and enjoy your garden, don't rush into it, see what grows well where. Because yeah. it the garden will tell you what grows well where you you can't force it it will do what it wants as you say certain things don't like a bit of shade or and there's little wind tunnels you get in gardens as well just naturally forming and you'll find that but that's the perfect place for it well it just might have been a wind tunnel whether it be there's a shed near it or something like that and things like i mean like aces like little japanese aces don't like wind tunnels and they don't like full sun and it's very small things they not saying they won't but they a little thing like that can stop you having a really nice plant to just kind of, well, it didn't really do anything, which is what I often get told by customers. Well, I put it there and it's never really done anything. And you're kind of like, mm, yeah, there's, there will be a reason why it's done nothing. Yeah. Excellent. Right, now, Chris, you're well known for um, your garden designs and you do like to harmonise nature and wildlife. Have you got any simple tips for the readers of Kitchen Garden to um, kind of, like, uh, not a hard and fast rule, but little things you can do that you think will help people in, in designing their gardens that you think are, are good tips to start with that can set you on the right course? Yeah, I think it, in terms of um, productive gardens, I'd certainly um, advocate making the compost heap as big as possible and also yep. maybe choosing where the compost heap goes before you do anything else. Because if you get a good composting system and you've got your compost in the right place, you'll get a very good compost very quickly. And, and you know, most people put the compost heap where they can't grow anything or in an, a, yes. an unfavorable, unsightly area. But think of the compost heap as the engine room and therefore give it due credit and put it in a favorable position. So, you know, it should be, of course, sheltered from cold winds, sheltered from direct sunshine in a kind of ameliorated area where the temperature and moisture levels remain pretty much static. So underneath trees actually is, is pretty good. I've got mine underneath a big sycamore tree on the allotment here. Um, and, and it does really well. It rots down really quickly. 
So make make the, the, the compost heap large enough, but position it. And I, I always say, you know, if it's the sort of spot you might want to sit in on a summer's day, then that's probably the spot you need to put your compost heap in because you need that kind of cool, um, ameliorated environment that's just kind of calmed down. It's neither one extreme nor the other. Um, and then you'll get really hot compost uh, and you can get your compost turning around, especially if you're putting enough greenery on, you can put it on um, and uh, and it will be, you know, six, seven months and you can empty it and then put it put it onto the, mm-hmm. the garden and start again. And of course you have multiple uh, multiple bays. So I think that's that's really important. And, and I think, um, you know, don't, don't underestimate the power of birds. Um, we've got yeah. um, bird feeders and, uh, and and bird tables on the allotment and, and um, all around the garden at home. Um, we never do any um, spraying for pests. Um, we just let the, the birds um, uh, take them off. Um, certainly on things like my, um, uh, my pear, I've got a, f- a fan-trained pear, um, and um, the, the, the pear is uh, you know, very prone to, uh, to aphids. Um, but we just hang little fat balls on the on yeah. the, the, the branches of the of the pear, and um, the blue tits come along. Even in summer, they come along, and um, they'll uh, they'll be queuing up very politely to peck at the fat balls. And whilst they're waiting for their turn on the fat balls, they um, they peck off the the aphids too. Yeah, um, so I, I would certainly uh, advocate that. And I think don't be don't be too um, uh, too malicious in terms of wasps. Um, in fact, I was having a conversation. Yeah. Um, just the other day with a journalist and trying to to explain, she was saying, you know, she hated wasps. And I said, no, don't, don't, don't hate wasps. Wasps are actually really good news in the garden. Yeah. They harvest more caterpillars and cabbage white caterpillars than any other organism coming in. So if you can get wasps into the, into the garden or if you can tolerate wasps into the allotment area, then um, in the early part of the season, they take more caterpillars than anything else. Mm. Um, any other single source. So, um, you know, it's that type of thing that, that I think is, is, um, is really useful and also of course just looking after the ground conditions we touched on soil um, a few moments ago and and making sure that you put lots of organic matter on lots of um, really well rotted organic matter and lay it on the soil and let the um, the macro organisms and the microorganisms do all the hard work so after the initial dig of the allotment we're not going to do anything to our allotment um, it is just uh, mulch on the top and then leave it for the winter and um, let the, the the worms, the earthworms, do the do the hard work. And it's amazing how quickly uh, you know well rotted manure gets incorporated into the into the ground. And of course, if you've got a healthy population of ground beetles, they're controlling some of the more pernicious pests, um, especially the root uh, root nibbling pests. And um, if you've got a healthy population of worms, then that's controlling your drainage and aeration, reducing compaction, and uh, and so on. Um, and of course, as a uh, as you, you will well know, when a worm starts to digest organic matter, it goes through the gut of the worm several times. In fact, it's reputed to go through seven times. And every time it goes mm. through the gut, um, there's a, a kind of mucus which is extruded from the, the back end of the worm. And that adds to the water holding capacity of the soil. So it's increasing drainage in uh, in conditions like today when it's pouring with rain. Mm. Um, but it's it's also increasing water holding capacity as well due to this kind of mucus, which is the result of um, of worm casts. Uh, and so those sorts of things, you know, gardening in tune with the organisms which are sharing your plot, I think is 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 really really important. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree. Kind of, I did enjoy your picture on um, a social media platform. You had a very nice. Um, is a kind of flower crown for UK Gardening Day. Oh, very nice. Was this all your own handiwork? No, it wasn't, sadly. No, it was a local florist. 
No, no, my, my handiwork would have been a slightly more primitive than that. But oh, I think it, it's a great, um, it's a great uh, uh, initiative, really. Yes. Um, you know, Garden Day, getting people outside. And the, 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 the impetus of that really is to get people outside and not to worry about toiling in the garden, but just sit and enjoy. Well, and enjoy it, yes. And, and I think sometimes we beat ourselves up as gardeners and as professional gardeners, we beat ourselves up that we're not, you know, we're, that we, we sit down for five minutes and then feel guilty about it. And actually, um, I think, you know, one of the great um, attributes of the garden and one of the great signs of, uh, of it being a very confident garden is that you've got plenty of places to sit down. And I think mm. if, you, if you don't mind sitting down and just absorbing, then you, you kind of gather your thoughts. You can then prioritise your jobs, enjoy the fruits of your labours and then go forwards when you, when you feel like it. I think, we, you know, we spend a bit too much time worrying about what we should be doing rather than enjoying yeah. what we've actually done. But it's often from my customers, I imagine yours as well, is they may not particularly be gardeners themselves, but they want to enjoy a garden, which is hence why they employ a gardener to do it, to make it look nice so they can enjoy it. So as you say, it's something that we should maybe take from our own customers and take on board for ourselves as such. Now, you're a long, long-standing man on doing gardeners' question time, and I, I think, and I've said to a couple of other people, I've, um, of Bob Flowerdew, uh, Toby Buckland, I think you're quite brave to go on something like that because it's not particularly, well, I know slightly scripted is the wrong word, but you have a little bit of prior knowledge, but you're a brave man to go on a programme like that with people phoning up and testing your knowledge. It would terrify, it would terrify me and I imagine it would terrify 99.9% of any professional gardener being suddenly put there and actually you're on, you're on show and someone's just hitting you with a question. I mean, I like it when some people just say, I don't know. It's not my area of expertise. It's nice. It's nice to see that. Whereas some people, unfortunately, sometimes try and blather their way out of it, and it doesn't work out very well. But I think I take my hat off to you and other professionals like that that are willing to go on it. But it does look like it's a wonderful thing to go on. Gardener's Question Time, or it's appearing, great, should I say? Yeah, it's a great um, institution, really. And um, first time I went on anything like that many years ago um at the at the other end of the panel was bob flowdew funnily enough you mentioned yeah. his name yeah and, bob yeah um, him yeah down at the um the, the bath and wells showground i think it was and um, yeah. bob was uh was quite rightly very suspicious about who this um, young precocious character was who, <laughs> who uh, was sitting at the opposite end of the panel but um i think one of the great things is that you very quickly learn who your fellow, what your fellow panellists um, mm. feel comfortable answering. And, uh, and also the chair, um, you know, when Eric was doing it, and certainly when Peter and, and, uh, and uh, Kathy now do it, they, they also know what our particular areas of expertise mm. and are and what we feel comfortable doing. But also they know um, if they can, you know, tease us about various things, uh, successes and or failures. And um, so actually you never feel completely isolated. It isn't, you, you know, you don't feel as though you're, you're in the kind of professional spotlight. There's always somebody there to help. And, and very often, because what goes out on air is only a fraction of, of yeah. what's actually recorded. You know, we, we might record. In fact, I did one on Wednesday that's about to go out. Um, we recorded just a few days in advance. And um, I did one on, on Wednesday. And, um, uh, you know, the, 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 I think the record was two and a half hours. Mm. Um, and it goes out for, what, 40 minutes or so. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of surplus material. But very often what happens is you get, um, if somebody's going off on the wrong track, 
one of us will step in and, and kind of gently you know corral them back in the right direction and you know we all we all make that mistake because you mishear something um or you're busy writing the question down yeah. and uh, and you miss a key point um so you know it's, it's and i think you're right it's also about not you know none of us know everything and um, we we might know something from our own experience and perspective so you sort of give advice on that basis really and and i think in my early days i used to say things like um, oh, you know, uh, I don't know, um, Lavatera won't grow in these conditions or whatever it is. Mm. And, and I, that's an absolute guarantee <laughs> that somebody's going to put their hand up and say, I've got exactly those conditions and mine does very right. well. Thank you. So you tend to phrase things in a much more um, generalistic way, which is in my experience, yes. I've not had success with Lavatera in those conditions. Um, just to just so that you're not really putting your, your your sort of head on the block, but it's it's great fun and um, you know it's a lovely team to work with and um, and we've had some some great fun prior to lockdown. Of course, we used to travel all around the country, mm. so we used to spend a lot more time together and and sometimes sort of in various um, uh, dodgy hotels uh, in in the sort of outback and outreaches of the UK. Um, and more recently, of course, we've been doing it on Zoom, and that's a completely different experience. Yeah. Um, to, because when you're sitting in a panel in a straight line, you can't see the other person's face. Um, no. you, know, you can crane around a little bit, but you can't really see it because you're talking to a live audience. But on Zoom, of course, you're looking at their face, so you can see when people are getting a bit nervous or a bit, uh, or, or, yeah. or, you know, What's a bit talking about? Lost. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think yeah. it's, it's a very different experience. But I have to say that doing it in front of a live audience is just fantastic because you can really play the audience and mm. and you know gardeners are they come along in with exactly the right spirit and um and and it's great fun to to be able to you know sometimes tease and tempt and uh, be a bit mischievous around them um very often you get questions uh, along the lines of um a friend of mine um has oh, done yeah. this to this plant yeah. and, and they said it's died um, what do you, you know, what advice would you give yeah. them? We drill into it and we very often find that actually it's, it's, it's the yeah. person that's asked the question or it's their partner who's sitting next to them in the audience, you know, who's done it. So we, we, we learn quite a lot about the people that we're, we're mm. being questioned by. Um, but yeah, it's great, great fun. And I'm surprised, you know, how many people listen to that programme, um, not just in the UK, but worldwide as well on the, oh, on the yeah. platform um, and how relevant it is for people who don't have a garden and the number of people who contact the show and say, I don't have a garden, I don't have a balcony, mm. I don't grow plants. But what I enjoy listening to is a community of people who are enthusiastic, talking with you know, delight about their subject. Mm. And that is ju it's just a very settling um, uh, programme, really, in, yeah. in that respect. You know, it, it's just a very easy listen. Um, and occasionally you might learn something, which is, which is great. I think it is. Um... I saw another chap. He's on um, Terry Walton. He's off. He's off oh, yeah. on radio too. Yeah, yeah, I know and Terry. The amount of, yeah, Terry, he's a lovely chap, Terry. And um, but as he's, he said to me before, and I spoke to him, a lot, lot of the people they actually ring up and they don't grow vegetables, but they just like listening to Terry and his tales from the plot. And it's just a wonderful thing. And they're not really less. They, they'd like to. Then he encourages people to do things, but it's just that kind of. They just love that kind of natural thing that I think gardeners have. Are just down to earth, just telling you. As, it, as as you said, as as I find it, as, that's all you can do is say as I find it, 
Mm. I do agree with you about the my friend is always yeah you mean you yeah that that old one but it's all fun but yeah no um, I so I was I watched one of the um, Zoom recordings a good couple of months ago and it is a bit different but as you say I imagine like all performers you want that live audience because you feed off them if you've got a good audience it can make a good show I'm not saying a bad audience makes a bad show but a good audience can make a elevate more than it is as such yeah so, uh, well. I- We've certainly learned over the years that um, the audiences who are um, most vociferous and uh, most mm. energetic are the audiences, firstly, where it's, it's a particular gardening club. So, you know, they all mm. know one another, so their guard is, is lowered. Um, and also, if um, somebody at the gardening club has decided to serve wine before the recording, um, once the guard has a glass or two of wine, then um, you can guarantee that it's going to get a bit risque and a bit raucous, um, which is great fun. You have to struggle to get out sometimes, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, well, there's always a back door. Well, this is it. This is it. The other one I ask, because I do watch Beach Grove. I don't always watch it, but I remember when I first watched it, I remember thinking, oh, Beach Grove, which is, that, is it set up, is set up quite a way in Scotland, isn't it? Is it Aberdeenshire way? It's Aberdeenshire. And, yeah, and then in the European, and I thought, but Chris Beachall lives nowhere near Scotland. How did you kind of in, how did you become part of that? Which is what well, you are. You are an integral part of Beach Grove. I know you don't live there, but you're yeah. an integral part of the show. So I I had worked with the production company uh, on a different program. We did a program in Northern Ireland um, and for for BBC Northern Ireland for that production company and um, and so Turn Television are, are also responsible certainly for the last, what, 15, 20 years or something of doing um, Beach Grove. Um, Turn, uh, they're part now of a larger larger organisation, but they were based in Aberdeen. And um, I, I went to a Garden Writers Guild um, uh, meal, you know, the, the kind of um, end of the year. Uh, uh, oh, yes, I, I've, I've just joined the Garden Media Guild now, isn't yeah. it? They've changed their name. Right. Yeah, no, I've, I've, funny enough, I've, I've just joined them. So. Yeah, and and um, and I was I was there and and happened to uh, bump into one of the producers and just said I really love this program I think it's a yeah. it's a great program it wasn't broadcast south of the border at the time it was it was exclusively a, a Scottish production and for broadcast and digestion in Scotland and uh, and I I just said to them look I, I you know I'm not I'm not pitching for anything I just think it's a really great program and it's a real in a way it's the antithesis of Gardner's World um, mm. which is much more aspirational. Yes. Whereas Beach Grove is much more realistic and it's much more, much more similar to the conversations you would have down at the allotment um, than, than perhaps something like um, Gardener's World. You know, they are two very different products. Yes. yes. And, um, and, and I just said, I, I, I think it's great and, and, and really, really enjoy the relaxed approach to um, the way that you, you put the information across. And, uh, and then some while later, they, they um, contacted me and said, well, the BBC is... Uh, looking for new programmes with a sort of broadening of the BBC platform and iPlayer and all those sorts of things. Um, they wanted more content. And so the BBC centrally was looking out to the regions to see what uh, programmes they could broadcast across network that were just previously regional. And they decided that Beechgrove could be broadcast on network. Um, mm. But, um, and the simple truth is, they, they felt that um, nobody would quite understand the um, Aberdeen accent. So they wanted, <laughs> a token, quite, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they wanted a token Englishman on it um, to oh, make yeah, it yeah, kind yeah. of palatable for anybody south of the border. So I think that's, I am the token Englishman on, um, on, on, on Beechgrove to make it palatable to anyone who lives south of the border. 
Um, but it's, what's interesting is that where I am, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm uh, you know, 900 feet or so up and really exposed. And um, before lockdown, I would travel up to Aberdeen, um, you know, relatively frequently and do a day's filming and, and yeah, so on. Yeah. Um, and when I left home, if my daffodils were in flower, when I got to Aberdeen, the daffodils were in flower. The nature of that garden and the fact that that's the kind of dry east coast where the temperature is quite ameliorated, um, not actually that dissimilar in terms of the order of flowering of plants. Mm -hmm. So that nervousness that the BBC had about relevance um, of the programme, you know, it's a gardening programme for mm -hmm. Scotland, and therefore it won't apply to anyone in southern England because clearly the climate's very different, um, was absolutely proved to be wrong. Um, that uh, what is true is that if you have um, altitude, then of course that is in a way um, forcing the situation much more towards a northerly, um, uh, northerly position. Uh, and so, you know, the Cotswolds where I am is actually very similar in, from a cropping perspective as, mm -hmm. um, as Aberdeen on the East Coast. So I think it, it has much more relevance to, to people uh, than, than perhaps was initially envisaged, which is, which is great, but it's a lovely program to be, to be part of, yeah. Yeah. Um, last question. Will there be any more flying gardener, Chris? You and your <laughs> helicopter. <laughs> um, gosh, that's going back a bit. Um, when did we last film a flying gardener? That must be 20 years ago, I should think. Would that be 20 years? Oh, yeah. Probably, yeah, probably would be. Yeah, maybe, uh, yeah, probably yeah. late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Would be You're a slip of a lad. I remember that. I know, I know, yeah. Straight out. Well, actually, I was teaching um, at the time. I was lecturing. And, um, and, and I got the gig because um, in true BBC fashion, um, the, uh, the, the, the then controller of BBC Two apparently was flying back from Manchester to, to uh, London in the BBC helicopter because the BBC apparently had its own helicopter. And she looked out the window and, and looked down at the pattern of gardens and just said, oh, there must be a programme in that. So um, they, um, or she contacted one of the exec producers to develop a format. And so I was, I was lecturing at Pershaw College. And in fact, I was sitting outside having my lunch and um, my phone rang and uh, this person said, uh, you don't know who I am, but um, we've been past your name. Um, can I just ask you a few questions? And I said, yeah, of course, that's fine. And mm. uh, so she said, you know, how do you feel about flying? And I said, well, I don't mind flying. It's fine. I I'm, I'm not a pilot, but I, I enjoy flying. Yeah. And, uh, and she said, well, do you know, um, what do you know about um, uh, like, um, the landscape? And I said, well, look, I teach landscape history. I'm, I'm a landscape designer and I teach landscape history. So she said, oh, that's great, you know, ticking the boxes. Yeah. And the third question was, are you available? And it just so happens I was available. So um, I went down and, and sat with them as they were developing this sort of program. And um, when I went into the meeting room, they said, so we've got this idea. It's going to be, uh, there's going to be a helicopter and you're going to take off and you're going to fly around and we need you to say something about landscape and gardens. And there was a pause and I said, right, what else? And they said, no, that's it. That's, that's the format. So yeah. what do you want to say? And so in trying to teach students about what plants to choose and where to, where to, to plant them and how to plant them, I'd um, been very much inspired by some of the older writings and sort of about the arts and crafts approach of, um, you know, right plant, right place is, is probably how we would now term it. But um, looking at um, nature for inspiration in terms of plant communities and plant position and, and environmental factors and so on. 
And I just said to them, look, you know, you could fly around the landscape and you can spot wetlands, you can spot because mm -hmm. of the verdancy of the ground, um, particular uh, vegetation types and leading to soil types and fertility and, and you know, look at woodlands and the way the sparseness of the canopies, et cetera. And that will give you a, a very good idea as to what you should be doing in your garden. And as soon as we started to explore that, they said, okay, that's, that's it. That's, that's what we need to do. And, and so Flying Gardener was, was born out of that. It was a, a kind of somewhat whimsical conversation um, and, mm -hmm. uh, and just that idea that I said, look, look to nature because nature will tell you everything you need to know about growing plants. Hmm. I enjoyed that. And I'm on a similar theme where they put Christine in a hot air balloon, didn't they? To, do, to yeah, view well, gardens as well. So, a similar yeah. theme, but they were really enjoyable things because it's, it's, it's not a normal way to view a garden. quite simply, yeah. and, it, and it leads different things. And as you, you understand how, I mean, going back hundreds of years, how landscape designers, from your capability Browns to your Gertrude G calls, how they, they maybe viewed things in a different way Although they couldn't physically obviously fly in a helicopter, they could hot air balloon. I think it gives you a wonderful way to think that they're thinking often on very many levels as yeah. such, not just ground view. What's it going to look like in the big stately home? Well, you're going to be 30, 40 feet in the air if you're looking from the top window type thing. And I think it's, it's a wonderful, it's, yeah, wonderful learning experience that how there's, it's not just about, you have to be thinking on multiple levels at all times. I know when I've chatted to him, Mark Lane, obviously he's in a wheelchair and he said he, uh, he hasn't always been in his wheelchair, but he says the different aspects you have to see from being an able-bodied to non-able-bodied gives you another unique perspective, in his case, a unique perspective to see actually that all the slightly different things. And, 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 I, think, and I think, you yes, you, like you said, hey, you're, you're always learning on those things and, and, um, and, uh, and it's a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, well, I think that I'd forgotten actually that Christine had gone up in a hot air balloon. But I think to, to answer your question about will there ever be another flying mm. gardener, I, I think that the, um, the the hot air balloon was probably as close as the BBC will permit themselves to uh, to go with it. I think that the um, the, the nervousness uh, over uh, being accused of having a, a large carbon footprint flying a helicopter yes. around probably is put paid to any uh, any reoccurrence of anything like flying gardener but um, yeah they, they did they did contact me subsequently uh to say um you know is there anything else that we can we can do you know is, this, is there something we can yeah. do in terms of um, you know the running gardener or something that's a little bit more um a little bit more eco and less less carbon footprint but i, I it as you quite rightly say the joy of that particular program was being able to be elevated and see the connectivity of the landscape and see the consequences of uh, a spring uh, meandering virus stream into an estuary and spilling out into the ocean. And, and all of those kind of connected habitats um, is what starts to join the dots in people's minds um, and, and get the education uh, angle across and, and give them the confidence to, 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 to have a go mm -hmm. um, at, at you know, planting the right range of plants. So I think it's a very, it's a, yeah, it was, it was a good, it was a good format and um, and appealed, you know. It was it was uh, it was a very sexy machine uh, to be flying around <laughs> in. Yeah. Um, so that that appealed to a certain audience. Um, yeah. Some people were quite partial to Michael, the helicopter pilot, um, and there were a few gardeners watching as well. So um, it was uh, you know it, it sort of touched touched a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of buttons or pressed a lot of buttons. I think in that respect, ticks all the boxes. That's probably some of the BBC would say. Well, yeah, yeah. thanks very much for joining us, Chris. It's been wonderful to uh, drop in on you and have a chat about all things nature as such. And um, 
and I wish you good luck in the thing. And as you say, and, um, I look forward to seeing a bit more of you on Teddy, maybe. There thank you go. You. Uh, maybe not uh, in the air. Well, thank you. And, and if I can just, um, to, to go back to Reedley for a moment, if I can just, yep. if anyone's looking for inspiration, looking for information, then um, point them in the direction of um, Reedley forward slash gardening, um, or actually it's readly.com forward slash gardening. And um, you, can, you can access um, that particular digital platform with the, that plethora of gardening advice, because um, you know, it's not always possible for you or I to be on hand to, uh, to hold people's yeah. hand as it were. So um, if, they, if they can't get access to you or I, then, um, then they can have a browse through Readly and, and maybe pick up an article from Medwin or Alan or Monty yeah. or whoever it is. No trouble. Well, thank you very much, Chris. And I say have a lovely weekend and I hope the rain and wind doesn't batter you too much over the weekend. Yeah, and you. Good to speak. Cheers. Lovely to speak to you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to Kitchen Garden Prime for just £4.99 per month. You'll be getting a whole lot for your plot, including an easy-read tablet and phone edition to read anywhere, anytime. Exclusive access to 10 years of digital back-issue archives, access to exclusive content from the online allotment, the Mudcateers website, plus the monthly print magazine will be delivered free to your door each month. Head to classicmagazines.co.uk forward slash KG Prime to sign up today. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.